Good evening, ladies and gentlemen. I'm not going to waste any time introducing our lecturer, Scotland leader Winfield Smith. He was one of the very early scientific pilots at Farnborough. And he was flying before I took the slightest interest in aeronautics. So from that you may guess that he started very young. I know many of the people he had to deal with, and I'm looking forward to a very interesting lecture. I'll now ask the squadron leader to give us his lecture. Mr. Naylor, ladies and gentlemen, I've been asked as one of the first pilots in this country and in the world to give you a short description of the difficulties we were up against historically in the good old days. This is a matter of opinion. In twice in which so many gallant men lost their lives to the end that we have such magnificent, marvellous weight and passenger carrying machines today, capable of flying a third or a half round the world. I am afraid that this talk is going to be rather egotistical, for which I apologize, but it's just a matter of an old man remembering things which happened in his day, over fifty years ago. I think it would be of interest to you to learn how we learned to fly. This is borne out by Sir John Salmon's book on called The Swifter Than Eagles, which uh, tells the same sort of story as this. I learnt at the Bristol Flying School at Brooklands, and my first instructors there were Pisy and Fleming, called by their friends Big and Little Appy. I was, as a second lieutenant, racing motorcycles in Brooklyn, much to the uh, disgust of my colonel, who thought I ought to play polo. Uh, I decided the track was getting dangerous at 60 to 70 miles an hour. So I went to the Bristol Flying School and got in conversation with Big Appy Fleming who offered to take me up in a Bristol Farman box kite. I've got a picture of this, which um, is rather interesting. As you'll see, the wings were stick, as we call them in those days, and covered with linen, and doped with sago pudding. It had outriggers in front here with a front elevator and a rear elevator. And the use of these elevators were, as you may surmise, to go up and down. But this one front here also acted to let you know if you were falling or rising, putting this on the horizon so you could see compared with this elevator, what you were doing. The only instruments we had on this was a piece of worsted and a couple of pulsators to show that the oil was going to the engine. So you had to have something to tell you whether you were going up or down. And that elevator did the trick. The horsepower of this machine was a 50 horsepower gnome, giving 35 horsepower, which in the best conditions gave you about 30 horse, 30 miles an hour. We sat on seats fastened in front here onto a thing like a rudder, like a, 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 a ladder, and your feet on a rudder in front. Your control stick for the elevators and the ailerons was on the side. The uh, ailerons were single acting, and when you landed, they fell down. 
This fellow has just got off, you see, and his aileron has just come into operation. It's a single skin machine. It wasn't a double skin, single skin, and it had a curve on it, as you see, to give it the incidence. The undercarriage was of wood, and the wheels were fastened to this by special shock, by shock absorbers made of catapult elastic. The wind resistance was built into this machine by a tremendous lot of wires, flying wires and lift wires between each strut, more like a birdcage than anything else. But that was, machine was invented by Farman in France and was originally sold to the Bristol Company, the patents or designs, and was made by the Bristol Company at uh, Bristol. Um, the method of learning to fly was uh, to pay the Bristol Company 120 pounds, which is very difficult for a young fellow in 1911, uh, second lieutenant, and my pay then in those days was five and threepence a day. So I begged or borrowed the money from my parents, uncles, etc., wherever I get it. Um, the one, then one did a little bit of dual flying, sitting in the seat behind the pilot, back here, nobody's shown there, just in front of the engine, and your hand over his shoulder on the joystick. Um, that is to get the pilot pupil used to being in the air. Because you must remember this, in this, these days, nobody knew much about the air. In fact, they knew practically nothing. After that, you were told to go and taxi across Brooklands. We had no runways, of course, in those days, just grass. And, um, you were told to taxi and please do not chase your tail. It wasn't too easy. The slightest wind, you had to counteract that before the wind, you got to know something about that before the wind knew about it. Otherwise it took charge of your tail. Then you did a series of straights um, for a few more days, coming down by switching your gnome on and off on a switch, being very careful not to leave that switch off too long, otherwise you'd lose your engine. Well, uh, this got, uh, seemed to annoy me rather. I rather forgot, being rather forgetful, um, that uh, I had to do this to land. And I left the engine running to find myself over the sewage farm. Uh, so then I thought, well, brains start working. I thought, well, I can't come down the sewage farm. So got the machine up to about 200 feet. Uh, then more brains had to come into action. What did I do, do to turn? I hadn't learnt this. I, nobody taught me how to turn. I'd seen my, my instructor turn, but uh, I didn't understand that, that was anything to do with it. He had kicked his foot about the, on the rudder. So I thought the rudder, and I just gave it a kick, and to my astonishment the machine started to turn. Well, it did a perfectly lovely flat side-slipping turn, uh, and not knowing that I should have some bank on as well, I then got round somehow, and at the other end, of the, over the Brooklyn's banking, I turned again, and by the grace of God, landed, much to the satisfaction of my instructors, who were then having fits. This is not part of the lesson. It was then decided that I was a menace. So I was given more duel. And then uh, I was allowed to go up and um, Ms. Uh, Colonel Perrin, Commander Perrin, I beg his pardon, uh, was sent for and asked to pass me out, to get me off their hands. Well, then it was decided by the War Office that only sappers Gunners, cavalrymen, uh, and guardies could fly because they had horse hands. Infantrymen were no good at all. 
So I thought this carefully out and uh, I invited Paisley and Fleming, uh, my late instructors, because my, I got my certificate and I passed out of their hands at that time, uh, to come to London to celebrate my certificate in the Bristol official car, which is a three-cylinder panhard. We went up to London and my entire capital then was under five pounds to celebrate the evening on. So we got, uh, when we got then, uh, had a very good meal and we had a lot to drink. I think we must have gone to the Empire or something like that. Anyhow, we had a very good evening and so much so that these two uh, were not very capable of driving back. So I had to take the car back myself. Um, then I got permission while they were in this uh, cheerful state to uh, fly the machine next day. So in the early morning, just after daybreak, I went down to the sheds at Brooklands and um, uh, got a fellow called Merriman, who was, uh, uh, became a very famous man, pilot afterwards, uh, to push the machine out, start the engine up, fill up the tanks, and off I went. I flew along the, the um, railway line. I made up my mind what I was going to do. Flew along the railway line, and that was fine. Lovely, crisp, frosty morning. Suddenly the wretched line went into a tunnel. That rather shook me. So I looked up and found the sun up here. So I kept the sun up there. Then the railway line came out of the tunnel. And uh, I thought this is fine. Then some huge mountains got in my way. I wasn't born about 200, 250 feet up. These mountains got in my way. This is ash ranges. So I thought, well, this is terrible. Flew around ash ranges overall a shot, and landed at Farnborough. Everybody said, where have you come from? Why well, I said, I come from Brooklands. It's good God. How marvelous. So they, they said, well, we better do something about it. They gave me some breakfast. They cleaned the cast oil off my tail. Otherwise, I should never got the tail flying. Tail heavy then. They cleaned it off, filled up my tanks, turned me round and sent me off back to Brooklands. I arrived at Brooklands. By this time, Paisley and Fleming had come too and they were in a terrible state because I had no insurance. It was against the rules of the company to fly a machine without insurance and I got my certificate. Anyhow, they were very grateful to see me back again and the Daily Mail next day had a quarter column in it, a wonderful cross-country flight of second lieutenant Winfield Smith from Brooklands to Farnborough and back. So I took this up to the war house and there I showed the war office that I could fly. I was then accepted and went to Farnborough, went to uh, uh, first course Central Flying School. Up Avon, where nobody instructed anybody else knew anything more about flying than the, the pupils. Anyhow, that passed off. And I was then a full-fledged RFC pilot. Now, the test in those days to fly consisted of four right-hand figures of eight and four left-hand figures of eight land within 120 yards of the observers. Well. That took quite a lot of doing, you can believe me. And uh, there was, uh, my, my put me up for, for learning to fly, and Longcroft there uh, was learning to fly, and we tossed up who should go first. He won, so his ticket was number 186, and mine was 187, quite a long time ago. Um, now, we knew so little about the elements in those days, you may imagine. People didn't realize what the 
sky was like and what anything about it. And uh, the more powerful our machines got, the more we learned. Um, a great friend of mine, who's still alive and lives near uh, Dover, uh, Major Reynolds, he was a left uh, captain, got uh, a brevet majority for his flying. And um, he got this brevet by the, given him by the war office. Um, was flying over Oxford one day in one of these box kites. And uh, over Port Meadows, he was a wonderful little man. He's very small and uh, uh, very uh, wary. And um, suddenly he got into what we know today as a storm. This turned him over, turned the whole machine over, and he fell out of his seat, by the grace of God, landed in the top wing, upside down. When the machine turned over again, it shot him into the bottom one. He couldn't very well get out because there so many wires. So he, he stayed in the machine. Just before it hit the ground, he jumped. Unfortunately, one of these front booms hit him and knocked him out. When he came to, he saw a man completely naked rushing towards him. This fellow had been bathing the river and he thought to himself, my God, there's an angel. I must be in heaven. Well, I've got, I've got uh, Major Reynolds' permission to tell you this story. <laughs> I don't like telling stories without asking permission. Uh, another instance of how little we knew about the elements was one day I was testing a new machine by myself, a B2C, a 70 horsepower Renault, double skin wings, and uh, ailerons. I think B2C, yes, had ailerons, this machine had ailerons, one of the first, and double acting ailerons too. Wooden undercarriage, you see, with uh, elastic shock absorbers. Um, and it was our job, the test pilots at Farnborough, to um, take up any machine, either government machine or contract machine, and fly it first before the uh, pilots in the Air Flying Corps got that. Well, I was flying along, and I saw a thing like an inverted big black cone in the air, which might have been a sugar cone, a great enormous thing. So I thought, that's very interesting, go and look at this. Unfortunately, I got into it, and it's all full of steam and smoke and, and uh, cloud, and before I knew where I was, I was thrown right over on my back machine. Then I turned over about three or four times more and the engine going full blast and uh, eventually got out upside down out of this thing. Then the problem was how to put the machine on its proper keel. So I then side slipped and uh, by mistake put it on its nose and then she went over the other way, right side slip. I side slipped again on its nose. And that I thought was rather interesting. So um, uh, I then went to there, got the mach another machine and turned it round in this way. Put it on a very steep bank to the left and right on his nose, then onto his right, and then onto his nose, and I found I was doing quite antics up there. Well, when I arrived down, I was using my rudder as my elevator at times, my elevator as a rudder. When I arrived down, one of my mechanics turned to me and said, oh, by gosh, 
said, that was a falling leaf. I didn't expect you to come out of that alive. So it's always called a falling leaf. It saved me, when in France, in 14, from Richthofen. Because he started firing at me, and he had the legs on me, and uh, I did this falling leaf. And he thought that I was going down. So he left me alone after that. Directly I got near the ground, I straightened up and opened up, went over the lines and got a lot of bullets in my machine for my trouble. I'm sure that I taught a lot of pilots to do this falling leaf. I'm sure that it saved a lot of our fellows in France at the early days of the first war. Another, show you another point about how little we knew about the air and flying. A great friend of mine called Billy Morehouse owned his own Blerio and told his friends that he was going to do a tail slide. We tried to dissuade him, told him that he'd never get out of that, and if he did, most likely his rudder would break off or his elevator, but he insisted on doing it. So we all waited to see him break his neck. You couldn't stop the man. I mean, if a man wants to break his neck, he can break his neck. But he wouldn't have stopped. He went up and did it, which taught us something about flying. He went up to put the machine into a steep climb and then waited for it to slow speed and slide backwards. And we learned quite a lot about that. Now, after this, shortly before the war, uh, Pegu came over to England on a Blerio, specially constructed Blerio, and was the first man to loop, the first man we saw in England loop. He had done it in Paris once or twice, and he went around giving demonstrations of this. And then Benny Hux, you may have heard of, who was a very good pilot, he went and did it in the same machine. I heard afterwards that uh, another friend of mine, Lord Grosvenor, known to his friends as the Fat Boy of Peckham, um, also did it on the same machine near Paris. But he forgot to level out, and he went on looping until he hit the ground, fortunately the right way up, and didn't break his neck. But he had cost a lot of money for the various machine. So, one day I decided that uh, I get one of these machines and have your landing Mars duplicated. You, your seat was carried by Mars inside here. So we had those duplicated. And then I got some old trunk straps, which I put over my shoulders and fastened onto the seat. And... Uh, very hush-hush this all was, you see, and um, proceeded to decide to go up and do the loop on the first British machine in England. Uh, well, my mother came down to see this. She, I told her, mentioned it to her, she insisted on coming down to see it, and was standing next to Mr. Ellerton, the factory chief inspector. Just before I went up, uh, a messenger boy came up to me to say that Mr. Gorman would like to see me when I had finished flying. So I taxied out, and as I went past the offices, I saw Mr. Gorman looking out of the windows. He knew what I was going to do, watching me go taxi up to get off. Uh, this is quite unofficially done and was, I thought, fairly secret, but of course everybody knew about it. I took the machine up to about 3,000 feet and bearing it in mind that I must not put too big a strain by pulling the elevator back sharply, I put, it, put the machine to a speed of 90 miles an hour. It's normal speed 
on level was about 70, 70, 75. Put it down to 90 and then pull my elevator back slowly for half the travel and then right back into my tummy for the remainder. When we got upside down, the engine stopped and there she hung. Well, I managed to then sideslip her off that and got her into a, into a nose dive when the engine started up again. But as it did that, a large cloud of smoke exhaust, the um, lubricating oil came out of the exhaust. And Ellerton, who was a very nervous man, said, Oh my God, his tail's come off. With that, my mother fainted. I then took the machine up to 5,000 feet and went through the motions again and put her down to a speed of over 100. Uh, pulled the elevator back faster. She went over perfectly and I came down. And then after a sprat went up, he was another test pilot there, he went up and he took it, took did the same thing. And that was the first time in England an English machine was ever looped. It was quite exciting, I'll show you. Um, I then went over to see Mr. Gorman in his office, who congratulated me and informed me that the war office had grounded all BE-2s. <laughs> he then telephoned the war office that the, the ban was, and the ban was lifted. The ROC was so short of, <laughs> so short of machines, they had to lift it after they decided it was quite a safe machine after it looped the loop. You must remember in those days, we had no wind tunnels. We didn't know what machine was going to, whether the machine was going to fly or not. And the only way of testing a machine was turn it upside down on chocks and load it with sandbags. The factor of safety was three, generally accepted as being safe. Three to one. And that's how these are tested. On the, um, during the 1913 uh, maneuvers, there were six officers before the maneuvers, practicing for the maneuvers, got, had been killed. And we weren't very keen on these maneuvers coming off. We didn't think they were a very good uh, effort. But the war office wanted to prove to the uh, generals and HM uh, George V that the Air Force was a very valuable arm. So we raked in the Navy to come and help and they sent four or five machines. They raked in the test pilots from Farnborough um, and we were stationed in a big field at Lilbourne near Rugby near where the masts are, the big masts are there now about that field. Um, we weren't very enthusiastic about this, these maneuvers. Anyhow, one day I was told uh, to demonstrate to His Majesty um, that next morning I was to take Wilson, I believe he's still alive, as my observer. Reconnoiter the enemy and drop a message bag at HQ. I was never a very good officer and seldom read orders. And which were to the effect this particular day that only one third of the lead in the message bag was to be used. I, f I didn't take notice of that. I didn't in fact read the orders. I didn't know. Well, so we then got the Daily Mail that morning and read the position of the enemy, very kind of them. We then wrote out our message on the ground and put in the bag. I then folded the bag up, put it into my leather pocket and up we went. Then having done a trip around the country, not very interested in the enemy really, came back to land and I had a violent altercation with Wilson.
as to which bunch of officers, there were two big bundles of officers on the ground, which one was the one we wanted, which one contained the king, because we were supposed to demonstrate the king, in particular, and the staff officers. Well, as I had the message bag, I also had control of the machine. I decided which was the right one. Um, I dropped this over the bundle, over the bunch of officers, I thought, and it fell uh, within 18 inches of His Majesty and buried itself four inches in the ground. We then landed and were met by General Henderson, in those days commanding the Flying Corps, um, who told me what he thought about me and my antecedents in no mean language. And I shouldn't be allowed, I shouldn't really be an officer. <laughs> Which is rather hurt more than anything else, he said. So, um, uh, then, His Majesty asked Henderson to present me to the King. He was very pleased at my excellent shooting. <laughs> Um, when Sir Winston Churchill was First Lord and Jack Seeley was War Minister, they took on a bet, a competition, who would learn to fly first. Lieutenant Spencer Gray, RN, was allocated to Winston Churchill. And I was told to teach Jack Seeley. Uh, I don't know, I never discovered after, ever after who did win. I don't think either of them really learned to fly. So it was easy meat. <laughs> um, anyhow, I spent many happy weekends with Jack Seeley at his home in the Isle of Wight. Which is very satisfactory to me, anyhow. Then, later on, a question came up in the House. They started to rattle Jack Seeley when he was Minister of War then, as, uh, again um, about the size and efficiency of the RFC. He stated we had the fastest machines capable of flying the longest, the highest and furthest in uh, the world. And a committee was formed to prove his statement. So Longcroft, who was then a flying officer in number two squadron stationed in Montrose, had some big tanks fitted in the front of his machine on the passenger seat and went off. He flew over Farnborough down to Southampton and back. And it was then a world-length, long-distance flight, which is nothing today, as you know. Um, I was told to get the height record on RE3. But at about uh, 15,000 feet, the reduction gear and propeller came off making the machine terribly tail-heavy. I had great difficulty in getting the machine down to earth and landing, but by grace of God, I did. Uh, when new propeller gear was fitted, I took it up to 22,000 feet, which proved to be a world record. And believe me, it wasn't funny at that height. No oxygen at all. Uh, the SE-4 was designed by Folland at Farnborough and built at Farnborough. This had a monocoque body. We've got a picture of this, I think, here. Number four. It had a monocoque body, single-seater, and two 80-nome engines coupled together in front. That machine 
attained the speed with um, of 131 miles an hour, unofficially a world speed record, flown by Norman Spratt. This machine was only flown by Jack Salmon, Norman Spratt and myself, and was crashed by Spratt when he proposed to take it over to France. What he was going to do in France, I didn't, nobody knew. But he proposed to take it over to France to fight the Germans. So the house was unsatisfied as to speed and height and distance. Then came the number of machines we had. A committee was formed, as I said before, to count the machines. They came down to Farnborough and counted the machine cell. Uh, I was detailed to take up uh, any of the committee who wanted to fly. After a few trips, my machine developed trouble. So I got a machine out of a test pool, which happened to be an old, an Avro, a new machine, and never been tested. And Mr. Bird, of Bird's Custard Powder fame, uh, came up with me in this machine. Directly it took off. I didn't know anything about the machine, never flown in my life before. Directly it took off. The, uh, to my horror, I discovered the pitot tube was not connected. I had no idea what speed we were doing, what speed we had to land, what speed we had to fly at. I had not the slightest idea. And it was very difficult in those days to judge on a foreign machine, you can understand. Um, when we landed, uh, Mr. Bird got out of the machine, expressed his thanks, and remarked that he never expected to get out down without a crash. Little did he know what he'd gone through and might have had a really good crash. I'm sorry to say Mr. Bird was killed uh, in Piccadilly a few years after this by a taxi. Then we learned, we were then, um, one morning very early, all the committee were put up at the Queen's Hotel. Next morning, uh, very early, we all set off down to Netherhaven, where we landed. The rudders whipped off quickly, new rudders put on, new numbers, and the committee arrived later in the day and counted the machines again. <laughs> Never mind, I'm not a politician. <laughs> That's nothing to do with me. <laughs> um, uh, to show how little we knew about aviation in those days, as we were going off to France in August 14, dear old Geoffrey de Havilland, who was just come out of hospital and was not, not allowed to go with us. He wanted to go, but he wouldn't. Thank God he didn't. Because he did such marvelous works in, in uh, designing machines. Uh, he just got out of hospital and uh, he, very upset, could not go with us. As he was medically unfit. Remarked to me that he did not know what would happen if a bullet went through the wing. He said that he thought that the fabric would strip off. This was most comforting to me, coming from a, very, a man I very much respected as an expert. So imagine my joy when later I landed with a lot of holes in my wings. Number five. Oh, that is SE2. That's the pre-SE4. Uh, that is the one that de Havilland got crashed on. And the same design as SE4. But um, it had a, the, the, it had no tail skid. And uh, the rudder used to act as a tail skid. Well, that used to break after it had been bumped on the ground a few times. And that is DH sitting in the machine. I don't know if you recognize him. Now I would like to show you 
some of the machines which we had to fly and some of the early types which might be of interest to you. Number six. This is the famous Cody Cathedral. One day Cody invited me to go up with him and sit in front while he flew a machine and uh, he presented me with a lot of uh, uh, eggs and suggested that I should throw these eggs in the air as we flew along and he'd shoot them down. I didn't see the fun of that so I refused. <laughs> that is the famous Cody Cathedral. Number seven. I expect a lot of you know these machines. I apologize if you do. I'm hoping some of you won't know. This is the Avro triplane, which uh, I never flew myself, but uh, I know a lot of other people flew it. That's the old Avro triplane. Because old Roe was a marvelous trick cyclist. And previously he'd um, used to um, make, uh, do, do trick cycling as a hobby. And he and his brother, H.V., owned a factory in Manchester where they used to make the bullseye brace, if you ever remember those. <laughs> And they built these planes in that factory at, Farm, at uh, Manchester. And the first machine he ever uh, sold to the government, I was sent up with Park to fly back. It took us five days to get from Manchester to Farnborough. It wasn't bad going those days. <laughs> Landing in fields and then putting the engine right. Number eight. This machine is a very little known machine. I don't know if you've ever seen it. Unfortunately, it shows it without the green engine in it. That was a Flanders machine. It was very well advanced in design. It hadn't got many wires in the, on the strut, straight on the uh, wires on the wings, which is quite good. And it, uh, the engine was stuck out here and a quite a good undercarriage. That was the Flanders machine, which uh, my brother-in-law, Ronnie Kemp, was the chief, test, the chief pilot for that company. Unfortunately, funds ran out before he could really put it on the market. Number nine. This is the Graham White machine. And that is a rather copy of the Farnham. It had a front elevator and the rear elevator, but a very big uh, rudder, which was an advantage in those days. Then, number 10, this is a machine called the Martin Handyside, and that was designed by Handyside, who died about four years ago, and um, that was a very, very advanced design compared with other people, monoplane, a very good undercarriage with, with the skids out in front, which was very prevalent in those days, and of course the carapult elastic uh, shock absorbers. But uh, the only thing he got a, he got a, these tin posts here to strengthen up the wing, which made it very strong indeed. Uh, number eleven. That was the Bristol monoplane. The funny story about this, there are two um, blokes called Bettingdon. I think one got, went to quite a high rank in the Air Force. They uh, were the first people to learn to fly on this machine and um, they had various crashes and they used to come to awful blows with each other because the other fellow had done the crash and the other, he couldn't fly until he put together. They only had one machine. And this is the machine they had. The Bristol uh, monoplane. That never came to very much. They never built very many of them. Number 12. 
That's the Newport monoplane, which um, did very good work in the First War, and was made over here in England then, and uh, it did very good work. But you see the simple fuselage and very small elevator and rudder, but it is an extremely good machine, that. Then number 13, this is a very famous machine, the Handley Page. That is his original machine. And uh, unfortunately, Handley Page built very big machines and uh, could not get an engine big enough to lift those big machines off the ground or strong enough to lift them off the ground. And he got very hard up. He took into partnership uh, a gentleman by the name of Mr. Humphreys, who was a retired toothmonger. Not he knew anything about airplanes, but he had the money. <laughs> and he started working with Handley Page. Number 14. We wretched test pilots at Farnborough used to have to fly these um, machines before the RFC got them. This is old Cody. It's very difficult to get him all in. This is old Cody. The elevator and uh, uh, ailerons worked by the stick. This was his wheel for steering. He steered on a wheel, which is quite a different thing. Poor old Cody got killed. The next pilot was Geoffrey de Havilland, next test pilot. He took over. Jeffrey de Havilland, I told you just now, got smashed up in SE2 and some unkind friend at the war office suggested me. Uh, number 16. And I apologize. Not so good looking as he is today. <laughs> <laughs> I apologize for that one. Then number 17. This, these are the famous kites which Cody did such wonderful work with in the Boer War. The kite was sent up first and then the passenger went up like same method as we employed when we were kids. We used to send bits of paper up, messages as we call it, up to the kites. And you went up in this kite. I only went up once, and I thought it was most frightening, came down rather rapidly. But uh, that was just for fun I did that. And uh, that was the Cody kite. We did a tremendous good work in the uh, South African War in observation. Then number 18... That was F.E. this one. That is F.E. 3. Rather amusing story about it. This is going to be a one wonderful fighting machine with a gun in front and passengers sitting behind, uh, sitting behind. And there was no uh, skid at the back. The um, uh, rudder acted as your skid. The, this boom came out of the center of the propeller on a universal joint and was fastened to the wings by four wires. Well, the war officers were very excited about this and they decided to come down and see it fly the first time. I was detailed to take it up. Well, I didn't like the look of it and I told the factory I thought it was a very bad machine and most dangerous. I was told I got cold feet. I said, all right, I'll take it up. So I would taxi it up to Farnborough Road and turned around to face the wind, opened up the engine, and just before I got flying speed, the tail was flying, just before I got flying speed, I pulled the stick back like that, and the tail came down, bump on the ground. She broke off here, sat down like a praying mantis. That was the end of that machine. She never flew at all. 
Thank God. <laughs> Number 19. <laughs> this is rather an interesting historical picture which not very long ago in our lifetime. I want you to read this first, if you can. First official aeroplane flight in Great Britain. Length 496 yards, height 50 to 60 feet. Performed at Farnborough, Hans, by S.F. Cody, 5th of October, 1908. Not very long ago. Now then, Cody took off here. He taxied from here. Got airborne just about there. And was flying that distance. When he suddenly spotted, put the ship over a bit, and you move slightly over, he spotted some trees. He's not there today. This is superimposed on the modern uh, farm railroad. Saw those trees, did a turn, and crashed there. And that was not very many years ago. So that we have progressed quite a long ways in our lifetime. And I'm not so old. <laughs> well, uh, Mr. Naylor, ladies and gentlemen, I thank you for being so attentive to, I hope I'll be able to interest you. Thank you. And uh, it's wonderful to come across someone who's not only flown some of these very early machines, but has even gone up with one of Cody's kites. You're the first man I've ever met, sir, who's been up under a kite. We have seen these kites, some of us, because they came to a centenary at Farnborough, and they flew them then, but they didn't take anybody up. And I think you probably will remain one of the very few people who have ever been up in a kite. Now, it's um, extremely interesting to hear of all these aircraft and to find someone who had the courage to fly them and to come and tell us about them afterwards. I think, sir, you must be a very brave man, really, though you perhaps don't recognize it yourself. Now, I don't want to occupy the meeting with asking questions. Myself, would anyone in the audience like to get up and ask about these early days? Well, I don't think uh, William Bill Smith explained how he became a test pilot at Farnborough. Um, was this by choice, appointment, or, or sheer voluntary, uh, volunteer? I want to know how you actually became a test pilot. Oh, uh, did you volunteer, or did they no. offer you the job? No. What happened was, um, Cody was killed, and um, then de Havilland had the job. He was put in hospital, and um, as I told you just now, I was a very bad soldier. I was always getting adverse reports from my COs, and um, some friend, or maybe an enemy, in the war house suggested that I should take on the job and it was offered to me and I thought well this the money is very good <laughs> our pay in those days as a pilot was a, a pound a day 365 pounds a year but this job carried four shillings an hour flying pay which I thought was very helpful and I was a very rich man then <laughs> so I took the job we had under pilot. We had under pilots under us, quite a lot of them. Were then, sir, the third of the test pilots at Farnborough? Yes, I think it's amazing how you went to town and took a part, had a party on five pounds. Can you imagine in these days taking a, 
some people to a party and having a party in town and going to a theatre afterwards on five pounds and enjoying yourselves thoroughly and getting so drunk that you have to be driven back again. <laughs> well, we could in those days. <laughs> Whiskey was very cheap. <laughs> have you any more memories of Colonel Gorman, a man whom I found very fascinating myself? I think uh, uh, Mervyn the Mormon, we used to call him. Mervyn the Mormon. Yeah. <laughs> Mervyn the Mormon. <laughs> he was a grand fellow. And he did a wonderful job of work at the factory. And I think he advanced the factory more than anybody else, any other superintendent. You told us about a flight in which, you, upside down, you turned up on the top wing. One of Colonel O'Gorman's favorite stories was about someone who got into a spin, was thrown out of the aircraft, and when the aircraft came round again, he fell into his seat. I don't know whether that's right or not. Can you tell us? Well, I've heard that story, sir, and I rather discredit it. <laughs> it was very really funny when the... Another interesting story about an interesting man was when the uh, factory produced the, uh, the factory engine, the RAF engine they call it, Royal Aircraft Factory yeah. Engine, uh, I was told to fly this for four hours a day around Farnborough. Got very tired of this. And um, so um, I wrote to the war office and applied for permission to go across country. And um, uh, they said yes. So one weekend I said to, um, um, what is his name now? Uh, he became quite famous. I'll t think of it in a minute. He was um, general manager at... Um, uh, break people in Birmingham afterwards. Um, I said, well, come on down to Folkestone. I'm going down there for the day, for the weekend. I said, all right. So off we went. We landed at Folkestone and uh, uh, we had a very good weekend. On the way back, Monday, the cloud very low, very bad weather, and uh, we started off. Then um, uh, we didn't fill up any more petrol. I thought I got enough to take me back. I thought I knew my way too. Found myself over the North Sea. Petrol getting a bit short. So I headed inland over Maidstone and landed in a big field owned by Mr. Lyle, the ginger beer people. There uh, we asked, uh, the policeman came and all the villagers, never seen an aeroplane before, close up, and they came along, and I said to the priest, where can I get some petrol? He said, there's a place down the road here, I'll get some petrol. Blacksmith shop down there. So off he went, and came back with a young fellow pushing a go-kart. He said, how many do you want? I said, oh, about uh, ten tins, two-gallon tins, and he came back with this young fellow pushing the go-kart, and we piled the petrol into the aeroplane, and the young fellow gave me a bill pay. So I signed on behalf of the war office. This happened to be Sir William, Lord Roots afterwards. And when he got knighted, I wrote to him, congratulated him, and I said, Dear Billy, you don't remember that I gave you your first government contract. <laughs> Every time he met me, he used to always ask me after lunch. <laughs> Nervit, who was Captain Nervit, yes, the chairman of the Bentley Freight Company. I wonder whether you could tell us whether in those days you uh, undertook any night flying, or whether perchance, I believe Graham White, yeah. he was the first man in this country to take off, take off in the dark on his London, London Manchester flight. Um, war, when I came out of hospital uh, in 15, I was farmer for a short time, and um, uh, a man I knew very well, called Vanderbilt, had sold the idea to the war office that uh, aeroplanes should land uh, at night and fly at night. So I was then detailed to um, uh, take my machine up with a enormous accumulator in the, in the in machine, the passenger seat, 
and some a couple of headlamps underneath. And so I went up frightened stiff about this, because if, uh, if the engine stopped, I should never be able to find anywhere to land. <laughs> Anyhow, I went up, took this up, and landed at Farnborough. And I believe that's the first uh, official uh, uh, case of landing at night. And uh, I was very pleased about this, because I had a small motor car with very bad lighting on it, and Vanderbilt presented me with the headlamps and battery. I had a little... Uh, Tiny little car, which, oh, the battery and headlamps occupied the whole of the car almost. I think that's the first time landed at night, anywhere landed at night. I remember during the war, we used to go up um, punching zeppelins, and um, I was going coming back from London one day, and I heard there was going to be a zeppelin raid, went into... <coughs> commanded by a great friend of mine, Joubert de Laferti, who just died the other day, unfortunately. And he said, oh, Winnie, you're just the man we want. We're short of pilots. You better get in that machine and fly it over London and look for a, a Zeppelin. Well, this machine was equipped with a windlass on the side and a wire, and then the end of this wire was a thing like a grappling hook and in the middle of the grappling hook was a, the, the main body, and the main body of that grappling hook contained a rocket. So the great idea was to trail this wire across the Zeppelin, hook it in, and then the rocket go off, and, and the Zeppelin would burst. But I never thought about the poor pilot on top. <laughs> what would happen to him, I don't know. <laughs> but nobody ever saw the Zeppelin with that thing down. <laughs> Tell us about the occasion when you involuntarily turned upside down, and at the time you were flying towards some mysterious black cloud. Could you explain what the black cloud was? Uh, it's a storm. You've seen storms yourself, haven't you, very often? Yes. Like a big cone, upside down. That's what it was. I never forget uh, once, the first time I saw a um, complete... Um, rainbow, and um, I thought this was most extraordinary. So I wrote to the Royal Geographical Society about it, and they replied, well, you go up top of a mountain, you'll see the same thing then. <laughs> That's all I got from them. I think, sir, you were very kind to your passion, to your people who took up to learn to fly, because I have heard some of these earlier pupils speak about the days when they learned to, to fly. You, apparently, always provided a chair for them to sit on. Now, one of the uh, tales that Sir Joseph Pettival used to tell was that in his day, which must have been about the same time, that when he went up to learn to fly in the first instance, all he had, was able to do was to hold on to a strut with, with one hand and with his hand on the shoulder of the pilot on the other. And he says, when you've done that two or three times, well then, they said, get that airplane, and you fly. Apparently, you were a little kinder. <laughs> a friend of mine uh, was teaching people to fly on a B-2 dual control. We were very proud of that machine. And um, the passenger sat in front and the pilot behind. And he had a pilot who was very nervous. Loki, no uh, idea of... Uh, no confidence in himself at all. So he got him up in the air and um, he suddenly he pulled out the stick, which is in a socket, pulled it out, showed it to the passenger, threw it over the side. Now you land. He didn't tell him he got another one. Flying to that, the pupil did exactly the same thing. His was a fixture. <laughs> Could I ask you one more question? Do you ever come across Basque? Basque of Farmer. Remarkably nice man. Grandfellow. Got burnt in um, uh, B8. Got burnt to death in that. B8. B8, yes. I tried to find out for some time whether it was a fire. Yes, it was. B8. B8. 
It was unexpected, I presume. That's right. The, um, uh, Tommy Sopworth had a, um, a right machine with a 50 horsepower gnome in it and chain propeller, chain driven propellers. And he had a particular very rich old girl who used to come down and he, um, her ladyship, as she was, and I won't mention names. And <laughs> he said, look, I'm tired of this old girl. I don't mind her money, but I'm tired of her. Will you take her up? So we, I taxied along, it opened up, and we proceeded to fly. And just as we got over the sewage farm, or just coming up the sewage farm, the engine backed up, and in we went. <laughs> that dear friend of mine, <laughs> Gray, C.G., <laughs> Next week, he had an article in his paper, had a very interesting time watching the flying of Brooklands, especially the aquatic displays of Second Lieutenant Winfield Smith in the sewage farm, which I thought was very unkind. <laughs> well, if there are no more questions, it remains for me only to tell our lecturer how very interesting his account has been, congratulating him upon his delivery, and especially upon his memory. Having some little knowledge of those days myself, I can assure you that from that knowledge, I may say that his accuracy is remarkable. May I also couple with that our congratulations on our demonstrator, who had an unusual machine and still maintained the same high performance. Well, our very hearty congratulations, sir. Thank you very much.